Let's pray together. Lord God, we praise you this day. Thank you so much for all your many blessings in our lives, of course. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for the Monday Night Bible Study. We thank you for the opportunities to share your word. We thank you for everybody that has the desire to learn from your word and see what you have to say to us this evening. So we pray the Spirit would guide us and direct us through your word tonight. Lord, uh, watch over and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Marcy Monologue. Some interesting stuff tonight. Um, this particular one, <laughs> I like, I'll start this out with say, guess who is rapture ready? Well, we are currently, but Satan's rapture ready too. Why do I say that? Because the evil and the wickedness is, mag- is, is magnifying itself exponentially. I think he's getting it, getting everybody else in the world ready so that they won't go in the rapture. Um, I, this guy says, I believe we are seeing an exponential increase in the signs that the tribulation is almost upon this generation. As a matter of fact, I have no doubt of, of it. And I'm convinced that this deluge of evil foisted on this nation in particular is indicative of mankind's greatest enemy, knowing that the rescue is on the verge of taking place. He's probably right. That's good news for us. Not good news for everybody else that doesn't know Christ as Savior, of course. Another paragraph here I circled. By now, we all know or should know that we're living through an era that has been planned for many years. And the pandemic was not merely a window of opportunity for a great reset, reset that Klaus Schwab would like us to believe. Actually, Klaus Schwab the other day said that he guaranteed that there would be another major outbreak in the next few months. And I'm going, how in the world would that guy know that? Unless he's doing it. No, the reset required a situation whereby the masses would readily adhere to orders, no matter how inhumane, irrational, or downright ridiculous they may be. In other words, do what I say, don't ask why. Fear and confusion of a perceived deadly pandemic would elicit, made it the uh, perfect scenario to render individuals helpless and malleable. A combination that would not only enable a coup d'etat with plans of totalitarian control, but would have some individuals positively welcoming it. That's the way that Antichrist will gain his power the same way. Exactly. If only they had made aware, if they had been made aware of the plans that people of prominence had for us. Well, that's what we're trying to do every time we get together is to try to tell everybody about what's happening. And I think you all know a lot of it. There's a guy back in 1969, this may be what you're talking about, Ted. No, I guess Gary and I were talking about 1969, weren't we? Yeah, we were. This guy's named Richard Day. Is that the guy you're talking about? Okay, you were reading the same thing I was reading then. Okay, I'd forgotten that that number came up. He said and back in 1969, he talked about the fear created by pandemics and how the education system and the school-based clinics would begin the transformation of America and America's parent-child relationships through pandemics. Traditional marriage would, by design, become less important in sexual relationships, be transformed into perverse versions of unions between people, like same-sex marriage. And all of that would basically be for reduction of the population. Wow. And they've been talking about that ever since 1969. That's when we graduated from college, for Pete's sake. Richard Day talked about how sex would be relegated to Pleasurable pursuits, be diverted from family relationships and having children. 
thus to institute population control. And he talked about that in 1969. Okay. Scary, but the truth. Uh, this next one is about, he says, we live in perilous times on steroids. And I guess we know that to be true as well. Lawlessness and wickedness of our day. Um, two unchangeable factors. This one is talking about the first one is God's promises. And the second one is God's covenants. So we can rely on those, of course, regardless of what we see around us. What we talked about last night and what we're going to see that's coming up in our, in our uh, future. We have an unshakable anticipation of glory, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain of Hebrews 6, 19. So we don't have anything to worry about. I think that's true. God does not change. Whatever he says is going to happen, will. So there's no problem with that. Uh, the UN. Why in the world is that place still in, in existence? I don't know. There's a lot of things here. Have you heard of the, I've told you about this UNRWA. That's called this, the uh, United Nations Relief and Works Agency. That's what that stands for. What do they do? Well, they take in millions of dollars and they supposedly give that millions of dollars to needy countries, right? Well, get this. 12 UNRWA employees actively participated in October the 7th with Hamas. 13,000 UNRWA employees were in Gaza. 12% of them were affiliated with Hamas. 1,468 workers were known to be active in Hamas. 185 workers were active in the military branches of Hamas. 51 are active in what's called the PIJ. And I've forgotten what that stood for but it's something that's just as bad as Hamas is. The military branch of Hamas, that's what that is. I don't know what it stands for, but. And that's the UN. And they participated in the massacre of people and all the other horrendous and evil things that happened. That's amazing. Why are we, why are we funding the UN? Yeah, because Trump's not the president, that's right. There were 24 Hamas battalions in Gaza. There are now only 18. Rafah is the next Hamas center of gravity, and that's in the very southern part of Gaza uh, at the Egyptian border. Egyptians have increased their border to keep Palestinians out of Egypt. You ought to see it. It's, it's like 40 feet tall, covered in razor wire. It's about 30 feet thick. No way anybody can get through it, although this article is going to say later, they think there are many tunnels that they've dug underneath that fence, and they're actually supplying Gaza from Egypt. The Egyptians don't even know it. Yeah. We dig those tunnels 40, 50 feet deep and dig them for miles. So they could have started 10 miles into Gaza and tunneled all the way into Egypt, 10 miles into Egypt. That's no problem. They can do that. Well, we give them so much money. What's that? Oh, they've got machines that can do it. And they also use concrete. They've got pre-made pieces of concrete. When you see those videos of them going through those tunnels, they're all about this tall and they have these arched ways and they're all concrete. Those things they make outside and they put them in there to dig a hole and just put that in there and just keep on making tunnels. They've got one 
that they blew up the other day. There was 300, uh, what was it? Well, it was something in the neighborhood of 10 miles long. And they blew it up. So they blew up one that was like 300 feet. It was more 300 yards, it was 300 yards. And they blew it up. And you saw it when it blew up, it just, it just kept blowing up and going crazy. Yeah. It's amazing what they've done. So they're, they're in the process. I saw that there were still four active of those 24 battalions of 18 being destroyed. The other six, there's four of them that are in Rafa. And Rafa is the city that's right on the border, right in the middle of the <coughs> southern border of Gaza, right on the border of Egypt. Rafa is a major city right there. And the whole world is telling the Jews they can't go to Rafa. Don't go to Rafa. You know, they're, they're going to Rafa and they're, they're wiping people out like crazy, which is good. They should do that. Let's get into Dr. Duck. Um, this first one, members of the U.S. Congress warned on Monday this last week that the proposed World Health Organization pandemic treaty would cede significant power of governance over nations to self-appointed globalists in the case of a newly declared health emergency, and it looms as the greatest threat to freedom. Well, we've known about that. I've known about that for three years. Congress is just now waking up to that. Well, that's a good thing. I'm glad. <clears throat> um, Congressman Chris Smith, he's a Republican from New Jersey, said the definition of a health crisis is our problem. What's a health crisis to them? Listen to this. Potentially, could include the health of the planet. <laughs> you can tell, you can say that, you can sick anytime you want to. Uh, how about climate change? Whoa, really? Abortion on demand, that's a sickness. Um, transgender surgeries, regardless of a nation's laws, cause a health crisis. You don't let, grant that. How about uh, anything, any kind of silent dissent? Yes. Silent dissent. If they find that's it's happening somewhere then they can call that, you can call that a health crisis. And he's right. So basically we're in big trouble when that starts happening. And it's supposed to start happening pretty quick if we vote it in. Okay, here's various things here. Uh, this is Dr. Duck saying, I've often, this is quote him, I have often expressed my opinion that quote, the rider on the black horse is a global economic collapse. Probably so. Doesn't happen until the tribulation starts though. The economic collapse of the U.S. would trigger a global economic collapse. Well, I think that's absolutely true, and that could happen before the tribulation. The global collapse would happen early in the tribulation period if it's the black horse. And the Antichrist, after the Antichrist has arrived, yeah, that's true. It's when the black horse arrived. And it's a globalist goal to create a world government by 2030 or sooner. Well, how long is it from now until 2030 if you count this year? Seven years. So it could happen. America's debt is rising out of control. We'll talk about this coming Sunday night. By 2034, several government funds, the highway, Social Security, old age and survivors insurance trusts, and everything will be completely depleted. In other words, you're getting Social Security checks now? Won't get them then. You know, if we had the money that they've taken out of our paychecks ever since they were doing that, Social Security, 
if they'd invested that money in the bank accounts, savings accounts for all of us, we'd all be millionaires. What they did was they took our money and spent it. And then they promised they'd pay us back someday. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, this is funny. Okay. We laugh at Biden. Yeah. He's, he's not there. Um, following a, a report that said that Biden is, quote, willfully retained his classified notebooks, stored them in his house, and he knew that he was not allowed to do so. Okay, well, that's, that's criminal, okay? But Biden called a press, press conference to reply to that report. And during that conference, he declared that, quote, he is the most qualified person to be president of the United States. Yeah. But he got the president of Egypt and the president of Mexico mixed in his same speech. He got the border of Gaza mixed up with the border of Mexico. And he forgot the name of the church where his deceased son, deceased son Bo, got the rosary that Biden now wears daily. Forgot the name of the church. A reader sent an email, said, in one week, Biden has spoken to a dead French prime minister. He said he spoke to him just last week and the guy died in the, in the 90s. He's spoken to a dead German chancellor. He's been declared mentally unfit by a special prosecutor. And he called President Sisi of Egypt the president of Mexico. And everybody's fine with that. doesn't matter. It's okay. The world's on fire, and this man has the nuclear codes. Actually, he doesn't, but if he did, I really would be concerned, but he doesn't have the nuclear codes. Anyway, here's Dr. Duck's comment about that. The man who will be asked to surrender the sovereignty of the U.S. at the World Health Organization so that they can edict those things on us, meeting in late May, appears to be mentally ill. So we ought to pray for him. He's right. We should. That's true. Um, let me skip that one. <laughs> There's so many things. It's just, I'm laughing, but it's, it's not funny. It's just pitiful. Oh, okay. Here we go. Concerning the corruption of the UN, a major Hamas terror center in a large tunnel, 2,300 feet long. That's a half a mile. Okay under the UNRWA main headquarters building in Gaza. There you go. They knew about it. Didn't care. An electrified data center with rows of computer servers and living quarters in that tunnel received electricity from the UNRWA headquarters above. So that they were supplying electricity for the Moss Center and the computer servers and the living quarters. After finding this, Israel in invaded the UNRWA headquarters and found weapons, ammunition, grenades, and explosives in that UN building, intelligence assets and documents, and UNRWA officials that admitted that Hamas used offices at in that absolute that building that they were in. The UNRWA Commissioner General is denying having any knowledge that Hamas was there. Okay. And we believe that. Okay. Increase in the frequency of natural disasters. This is just, just a, oh, by the way, a tornado touchdown in Wisconsin. First time in recorded history that's ever happened in February. Okay. I don't think that's necessarily all that earth shaking, but that is kind of different. 
and a massive storm, the wettest three-day period in California history, has been pounding California this week and has killed nine people. They're, it's, they're flooding in California. Yes, sir. I saw something earlier this week that they've been plowing Well, if he's saying there have been cloud seeding out in Cal in the Pacific recently, and I guess it might be working, and so they're getting an awful lot of rain in California. Well, they do need the rain, but they don't need tons of it like that. The next one has to do with destruction of Damascus, and we know that Isaiah 17:1 says Damascus, Syria, will be destroyed completely, wiped, wiped off the face of the earth, basically. A ruinous heap is what it says. Well, on February 10th, Israeli jets struck several sites on the outskirts of Damascus, and Syria's foreign minister said that Syria's prepared to engage in conflict with Israel. Sure they are. No, they're not. That's just what he said. We're ready for war, he said, with Israel. Oh, okay. Well, I'm sure Israel will be happy to do that. Um, Israel started moving troops from central Gaza to the border with Lebanon and Syria. So they're, they're gearing up for that. Amir Sarfati last week, I guess it's a little more than a week ago, said the next front's going to be Lebanon. And Lebanon and Syria have share a border, as with Lebanon and Israel share a border. So it's going to go on. It's coming up. Let's see. And there's, here's a few things that have been happening this last week in that, in that Hamas war. Um, an Israeli airstrike on Sir Syrian military sites has has been held and it's been very devastating on the military, Syrian, Syrian military. A poll from Israelis say they don't want the war to end. That's good because they support it. Uh, Israel told Egypt that Hamas is smuggling weapons and supplies through 12 tunnels beneath the wall that they built between Egypt and the Hamas area. And Hamas cannot be destroyed without destroying those tunnels. And so Israel doesn't want to do that because that might uh, upset the treaty that Israel has with Egypt. And so they're worried about that. They don't want to blow the tunnels up. They want to blow the tunnels up that are in Egypt as well is the point. So anyway, that's, that's a diplomatic issue. Netanyahu, quote, there is no other solution besides complete victory like that. Israel killed the commander of Hamas's special police force in Rafah. See, that's, again, that's southern Gaza. So they're actually engaging them in southern Gaza, which is an excellent thing. Um, there were several Israeli airstrikes on three homes in Rafah. Israel believes Hamas has four battalions of troops in Rafah. Uh, Egypt gave Hamas two weeks to make a compromise with Israel, or Egypt will agree to let Israel enter Rafah and blow up the tunnels. So that's happening. Israel delivered supplies to a hospital in Khan Yunus in a city in southern uh, Gaza and found 20 Hamas terrorists hiding inside that hospital and they surrendered. By the way, I did find out all of these Hamas soldiers that are surrendering, and there's thousands of them now, they're putting them in camps and those camps Israel's offered up 15 camps with 25,000 tents in each camp. And the U.S., Egypt, Jordan, and the UAE are giving them money to do that. And that's the place where they're going to hide all those prisoners till they can, or house all those prisoners so they can go to court. 
and have their trials. When they have their trials, they'll be found guilty, I feel sure. What will be the, what will be the outcome of those trials? It's execution. Not, I think it's probably not universal, but basically it will be that. Um, let's see if there's anything else I wanted to mention. Funding the UNRWA is like providing missiles to Hamas. That's from a human rights organization in Switzerland. It's a good thing. Israel said there'll be no ceasefire leaves Hamas in power. Excellent. And the last thing, 100 representatives of relatives of Israeli hostages, as well as four former hostages, filed a war crime complaint against Hamas terror group at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. They presented a thousand pages of evidence and are demanding the arrest of Hamas leaders. So we're fighting back, and that's a good thing. So, is the world spinning out of control? That sounds like it. All right, we are in Luke chapter 8. And we're talking about a rather miraculous thing that happened. And it's kind of a fun thing because of something that I found in the, in the scripture that I hadn't seen before. So we'll get to that. It's calm in the storm. You know, God always has a plan to redeem both his people and the earth, or universe also. And that plan started immediately after the fall. And what was that plan? Well, Genesis 3.15. It says, this is God talking to Satan and Eve. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, Satan, and between your offspring, Satan, and her offspring. He, that person, that enmity or that uh, person will bruise your head. Excuse me. Well, you shall bruise. I'm sorry. You shall bruise him and tread under, uh, tread you under his foot. You will lie in wait and bruise his heel. So the first prophecy there of what he had in plan is, is right there. He says Satan's head will be crushed basically, but Satan will actually bruise Jesus. But Jesus, of course, will rise from that. The law that no mortal man could do is Matthew 121. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And that's what started out with Genesis 3.15. Now, in our immediate future, we know that Jesus is coming again in glory and majesty to destroy the wicked. But that won't happen until after the tribulation. Revelation 19. He will rule the earth through the, through the millennial kingdom. We know that. It's in Revelation 11 and 20. And we'll have peace and justice and truth and righteousness on the earth. But there's going to be an awful lot of stuff that happened between now and then. So he releases the curse on the earth and on men. He releases the curse on men through Christ's shed blood. He releases, releases the curse on the earth when he comes back. Now, that's the thing that's going to be so cool. The earth will be like the Garden of Eden at the start of the millennial kingdom. It will be fantastic. We can go through a bunch of these things, but peace and joy and knowledge of God will dominate the earth. He, health and healing will replace disease, Isaiah 33. Nature will change. Go to Isaiah 11. This is, this is you've heard this before. People misquote it all the time, too. They say the lion will lay down the lamb. It doesn't say that. And get to the right place. See, it's 33... 24 says, it's not it, sorry. 
11 through and 4. There we go. It's 11 through. It says, and so like, let's see. <laughs> Still wrong. Where is it, Roger? Come on. 11, 6, and 8. Yeah, here we go. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb, not the lion. How about that? Isn't that interesting? Everybody misquotes that. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. Leopard will lie down with the kid. Calf and the young lion and the fatted domestic animal together. And a little child shall lead them. And verse 8 says, the suckling child shall play over the hole of the asp. I don't think I'd even want my little one to do that in the millennial kingdom. Would you play over, over, over the snake's hole? I don't think I'd want to do that. The weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. In other words, snakes won't be a problem anymore. How about that? So God's going to take the curse off the earth in the millennial kingdom. God alone has that power to do that. He put it on the earth when we sin. He put it on us, of course. And he's going to take it off. Creation itself reveals God's mighty power. Go to Jeremiah chapter 10. Let's see, 10 through 12, it says, but the Lord is the true God and the God of truth, the God who is truth. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations are not able to bear his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. God has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding and skill, he stretched out the heavens. So in case you were wondering, it's a good thing to remember. Now, paradise lost will become paradise gained. That's exciting. Of course, God alone has the power to do that. Like I said, we're moving around the axis of the earth where we are located in Texas at about 700 miles an hour. Zero spins. The earth is moving through space and it's orbited around the sun at about 60,000 miles an hour. Yeah, we don't feel movement at all. Isn't that interesting? We're going 700 miles an hour like this as we move through the orbit of the earth going 60,000 miles an hour. <laughs> That's just amazing. Yet we don't feel anything. And the sun's orbiting too, did you know that? The sun doesn't sit still. It orbits inside the Milky Way. It's orbiting around the center of the Milky Way. We don't feel that either. There are innumerable other galaxies in our universe. There's also 100 billion stars in our galaxy besides us. That's something, and we don't know anything about them because they're so far away. God did that. Then you go the reverse direction. Does God have power? Well, if he did all that, how about go the other direction? Take a teaspoon of water. There are trillions, trillions, literally trillions of atoms in that teaspoon of water. Has anybody ever seen an atom? No, they're too small. No concept we can even come up with that. We have no idea that, that what's in there. We have never seen an atom. We just have, there's a theory of how atoms are made up. You know, there's neutrons and protons and there's electrons spinning around the center. Yeah, we don't know whether that's true or not. Nobody's ever seen one. Does God have any power? Tell me. What holds those little atoms together? Colossians said, what is it? 
117? Was it 2.17? God holds all things together. That explains it right there. If you could squeeze a human body and get all of the space out of a human body, in other words, all of the distances between electrons and protons, a human body would be less than a cubic inch. <laughs> Does God have power? So God holds all things together, and he holds them all by the word of his power. Go back in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and we see something very significant that we probably look over. I do. Hebrews 1, 3 says, He is the sole expression of the glory of God, the light being, the outraying of the divine, and he is the perfect imprint and very image of God's nature, upholding, maintaining, guiding, propelling the universe by his mighty word of power. And when he had, by offering himself, accomplished our cleansing of sins and riddance of guilt, he sat down at the right hand of the divine majesty on high. So if you have any doubts about who Jesus is, Almighty God, Creator God. So Luke makes Christ's identity unmistakably clear in this little section. Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's Son. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God incarnate. Absolutely. But his, his disciples haven't fully realized that yet. They've seen him do miracles. They've seen him raise the dead. They've seen him cure, cure illnesses. They've seen him drive out demons and so on and so forth. But now they're going to see something that actually affects their, their very lives. And they're amazed. And that's what this is about. He has authority over Satan, over demons, over disease, over death. So only he can and will reverse the curse on man. When people witnessed his awesome power, they realized their sin in the presence of God. You know, if we were there, and I'm sure those guys on that boat, which we're going to read about in a minute, realized that too. They were in the presence of God standing there because they had never seen anything like this before. So this little section here, we're going to split up into three parts. The calm before the storm, the calm during the storm, and the calm after the storm. <laughs> so we'll start out with verses 22 and 23 of chapter 8 of Luke. It says, one of those days, and just Luke is interesting. He does not put sequences of what happened in Jesus' life in chronological order. He puts them in thematic order. So he has themes. He might move things around so that they kind of come together. This is one of those. It says, one of those days, not specifically, he and his disciples, Jesus and his disciples, got into a boat. And he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. That would be going from basically Tiberius or Capernaum. We don't know for sure. Tiberius being on the southwestern corner of the, of the Sea of Galilee, Tiberius and corner. <laughs> Hello. I just said it a second ago. Capernaum, thank you, is on the northwestern corner of the lake. So they were going over to the eastern side of the lake to the area that they call Gesara or Gadar. You know, they're either people live there, either Gadarenes or Gerasenes. We don't know which one it is. It could be both of those. So they're going over there. And who's over there, by the way? Who does he meet over there? Legion, the guy who had 6,000 demons in him. Okay, but that's not part of this story. They're going over to that, that part of the lake. By the way, the Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and seven miles wide. It's a pretty good sized lake. 
and it had big storms on it. Oh yeah, twenty foot waves. So. Mark reveals that this incident took place on the evening of the same day that Jesus taught several parables. Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, probably a boat owned by either Peter and Andrew or James and John. They were, you know, they were fishermen and they probably had a boat right there. So it was not a big deal. Mark four thirty six says there were other small boats that went with them. So it wasn't just that boat. There were other boats as well. And Jesus may have been seeking to get a break from all the crowds possible. You know, he was human as well. God was also human, so he was probably pretty tired. So it might have been one reason he wanted to go to the other side. We don't know that, though. He just says, let's go to the other side of the lake. So they're headed for Garasa, like I said, or Gadara, two different names for that area. And on the way, after dark, that's in Matthew chapter 8. We didn't say that here, but it says after dark in Matthew chapter 8. They were sailing along, and Jesus fell asleep in the stern of the boat, his head on a pillow. It's in Mark 4:38. So he was very comfortable. He was at ease and sleeping. It's the only place in scripture where Jesus is seen sleeping. Is that not interesting? You know he slept every day, except for those days that he prayed all night. He did that several times. So anyway, and there were more than 12 disciples because of the word that's used uh, in this particular Verse, it says, the disciples came. That word disciple here in Greek actually refers to a student, a follower, and a learner. So there probably could be other people just besides the 12. There were probably several others. So the calm before the storm. They set out innocently. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Now the calm during the storm. That's verses 23b and 24a. It says, in a whirlwind... Revolving from below, swept down on the lake, upwards, below, from below upwards, swept down on the lake. The boat was filling with water, and they were in great danger. And the disciples came and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. So you see right there, that's, the calm, that's not calm. But Jesus is <coughs> the point. Calm during the storm. Suddenly, and this is known, the Lake Sea of Galilee is uh, the Lake of Galilee is known to have storms come up very quickly. Also, it's known to have storms go away very quickly. So apparently, very suddenly, the lake's tranquility disappeared, and a whirlwind came, or you could saw, call it a, a fierce gale, something like hurricane winds, because they use a word that that refers to something that is similar to hurricane winds. And uh, may have come down from Mount Hermon because remember, Mount Hermon's just up the way from there. It's 8,000 feet. And the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. So there's almost a 9,000 foot drop and storm could come over the mountain and go right down to the lake. So this was no ordinary storm. This was a life-threatening storm. You'd be afraid of this storm. And these massive waves are crashing over this boat, threatening to sink it. Because the boat's filling up with water. But Jesus is still sleeping in the back. And he's God. He knows what's going on. So the disciples are panic-stricken. They're about to die, they think. So they go wake up Jesus, and they say, Master, Master, we are perishing. So with no human solution available, they don't have anything they can do. So they turn to the one who had demonstrated his divine power because they'd seen him do it. But the point is, he has much more power than what they'd seen. 
Well, there's several verses in Psalms that refer to this. I thought it'd be fun to look at them real quick. There's uh, Psalm 65. Verses 5 through 7, and that says, By fearful and glorious things that terrify the wicked and make the godly sing praises, do you answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation, you who are the confidence and hope of all the ends of the earth and of those far off on the seas, who by your might have founded the mountains, being girded with power, who still the roaring of the seas and roaring of their waves and the tumult of the peoples. So it kind of addresses that in some way. Psalm 89, verse 9, says, O Lord God of hosts, excuse me, you rule the raging of the sea. When the waves of it arise, you still them. That's exactly what's happening here. And the last one is Psalm 107. 23 through 31, and that says, Some go down to the sea and travel over it in ships to do business in great waters. These are the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep, for he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. Those aboard mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the deeps, their courage melts away because of their plight. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. All their wisdom has come to nothing. That's exactly what these disciples were experiencing while this is about to kill them. This waves are about to kill them. Then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. That's exactly what the disciples did. And he brings them out of their distresses. He hushes the storm to a calm and to a gentle whisper so that the waves of the sea are still. Well, that's significant. I'll tell you why in a minute. And the last one, last two, then the men are glad because of the calm and he brings them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would praise and confess to the Lord his goodness and loving kindness and his wonderful works to the children of men. And it's interesting that Psalm was written, Psalms were written at least a thousand years before this actually occurred on the Sea of Galilee. It describes it perfectly in Psalm 107. So here we see it. So what happens? Now we see the calm after the storm. And that's verses 24b and 25a. It says, get back to the right place, Roger. It says, and he, Jesus, being thoroughly awakened, censured and blamed and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased and there became a calm. And he said to them, where's your faith? Where's your trust and confidence in me? So what people have tried to say with this particular incident, that all oh, this is no big deal. Storms can cease just as quickly as they could come up on the Sea of Galilee. Problem with that is, Jesus not only calmed the wind, he also calmed the sea. So if the storm stopped, the waves would still be rolling. Right? But Jesus made the wind stop and he made the sea calm at the same time. So you imagine you got 20 foot waves, all of a sudden it's glassy. And you'd look at him and go, wow. And that's exactly what they did. He says, Where's your faith? In other words, 
how come you didn't pay any attention to me? Now, this is interesting. Think about this. They had seen him perform miracles, but this was the first one anytime, anytime that he had done something that saved their lives. They'd watched him help other people, but it hadn't touched them personally. So the lessons for the disciples was clear. They could trust in the Lord in the most severe circumstances, but also he could actually save their lives, and they hadn't seen that before. Sometimes the Lord brings a storm into our lives, too, so we can recognize who he is, right? So the epilogue here. Storm after the calm, 25B. It says, so where is your faith in me? And they were seized with alarm and profound and reverent dread. And they marvel, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the wind and the sea and they obey him? Did you get that? They were seized with alarm and profound and reverent dread. Why? Realize they were standing as sinners in, in front of holy God. That's why they had dread. What's he going to do to us? Because we were sinners. And they marveled saying, who is this? We've seen him do incredible things, but we didn't know he could do that. We would have done the same thing. We would have been marveling at what he did. So what, what do we get from that? The very presence of God was on the earth. They were fearful and amazed. They were very impressed, of course, but they were so amazed that God was standing right there. Full realization of who he really was. So the obvious answer to their question, who then is this, is basically that you are certainly God's son, Matthew 14, 33. They knew that for sure. So this very brief time, very little, little vignette in Christ's life, reveals who he really was. Divine glory as the only one who can control the natural forces of the earth. Now, men will tell you today they've got a harp, H A A R P, uh, weapons that they can affect the weather. You can see clouds. And supposedly, with this harp weapon, you can control something as, as big as a hurricane, which I certainly don't believe. But that's what they say they can do. God can. He certainly can do those things. So, this storm, and we get storms in our lives too serves to basically increase the disciples' faith, and storms in our lives should do the same thing. Do we look? Not while it's happening, certainly. We look back on many things like that and see it, that it is. And I think that's what the lesson is here in this particular one. Anybody have any comments about it? That's all I've got. Isn't it interesting? I think just the realization these guys finally got. I've been following this guy around for a long time. They've seen him do incredible stuff, you know, but it never was anything that affected him directly. We're just observing him do things. And all of a sudden, he saved their lives. They were going to die. And they calmed the waters. Bam! And there's glassy smooth. Wow. <laughs> and they're out in the middle of this lake. Now, trust me, that lake's big enough. You couldn't see the shore. We might have been in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, it was just huge. That's, that's kind of scary, too. So... No place to go, no land to go to. Couldn't see any land. He's calmed the waters. Any comments? Interesting stuff. You see in the next verse, it talks about getting to the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, and that's where they run into Legion 
So we'll talk about him next week. A legion is at least 6,000 men. So a legion of, of demons would be 6,000 demons are in this guy. That make him strong? Roger. Oh, yes, ma'am. One thing that hit me as we went over this tonight was the fact that this happened to people that had spent their whole life on that Galilean lake fishing. These weren't people that knew nothing about the water or about the weather or anything there. They knew exactly what it was, and they knew they couldn't do that. That's good. She's saying these people, many of them on the boat anyway, many of them are fishermen. They've been out on that lake their whole lives, and they've probably never seen a storm like that before. And they were afraid. Now, they shouldn't have been afraid being out on the Sea of Galilee because they've been on the Sea of Galilee their whole lives fishing. They'd never seen a storm like that. So I think Jesus brought up a storm like that to prove something to them, that even they, as familiar as they were with being a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, could be in a dangerous and treacherous position, and they were. So that's true. Good point. Good point. It wasn't like they were just all a bunch of novices like us getting on a boat, you know. I would have been sick immediately, so it would be all right. I'm, I'm really not good about that. So. <laughs> we took some guys one time 15 miles out into the Gulf of Mexico on a, on a fishing trip, and it was a business expense, but I was, I was the one that was making this work. And going out was great. There was no problem at all. We got out there 15 miles out through water. Uh, the water was – you look off the side of the boat, and we were going up and down like this out that far and uh, started fishing. And I was watching the water instead of watching the horizon. It took me about 15 seconds, sicker than a dog. <laughs> the whole rest of the trip, I was at the bottom of the boat, deathly ill. But what was so miraculous about it was we got back to the shore finally after being out on that water for, I think we were out there for 10 hours. Got out, stepped out off of that boat on the solid ground and I was perfectly all right. Instantly, solid ground. <laughs> Gone on lots of cruises and hadn't gotten sick, so you know, I guess that's different though. Big ship, it doesn't do much rocking, you know, it's pretty, pretty smooth. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for uh, stories like this. Lord, we I confess, we, we really don't realize what it would have been like to be standing next to Jesus or actually talking to him or having him talk to us directly. Well, that'll happen someday. But they got to do that. They knew him intimately. We're with him on a daily basis over and over again for several years. But in this particular case, they had never actually been in a situation where their lives were dependent on him doing something. He says, where's your faith? All you have to do is say, Lord, would you take care of this for us? That's really what they should have done instead of being so panicked. So he questioned them, where's your faith? And then he calmed the waters, calmed the wind. Why? Because he made them. They have to obey him. That's amazing. Thank you for stories like this, Lord. They really are important to us. We suffer storms in our life, too. It may not be life-threatening, and again, it might be. But still... Why? Is there a reason for it? Disciples' faith was increased because of that particular incident. So do we have storms that's going to increase our faith too? And the answer to that is, of course. So whatever's happening in your life, consider God may be trying to teach you something. God may be building up your perseverance. 
God may be building up your faith. There's all kinds of reasons for things that happen. God doesn't do anything without a reason. He allows things to happen, yes, but he's always in control. So he allows them to happen for a reason. And everything fits together. He is in control of literally billions of lives. He knows everything that's going on, how it all fits together. We don't have any idea how he does that. But he does. So we have to praise him because he's almighty God. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Who are we that you would love us? Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.